This is an ABC podcast. This is The Philosopher's Zone. I'm Paul Mikhail Katapang Podoski in the chair while David Rutledge is on leave. The Philosopher's Zone recently launched a joint initiative with the Australasian Association of Philosophy, giving doctoral candidates and early career philosophers, like me, the opportunity to interview other young philosophers about their work. And so for me, that philosopher is Louise Richardson Self. And Louise is a lecturer in philosophy and gender studies at the University of Tasmania. So her work spans a range of different areas of social philosophy, uh, unified by a critical reflection on gender and race, and with a particular emphasis on online space. But it's her reflections on her own experience as a member from a diverse and often marginalised community that I'm particularly interested in and the challenges of navigating this space as a minority in philosophy. What would you say is a central theme of your research? Surprisingly, that's a very difficult question to answer. And thinking about it, I would say that what I've been most concerned with is the fact of human difference, but I've understood that very specifically as it pertains to embodied differences. And trying to look at issues of social justice where certain groups of people are disenfranchised or oppressed um, or face discrimination and disadvantage, walking, I guess, a tightrope between trying to explicitly recognise difference without collapsing into an essentialism and simultaneously being critical of sameness without giving up everything that's unique and specific to group members in order to advocate for a type of equal regard, you know, a kind of dignity and recognition of the other as other and not as uh, an inferior copy of the tacitly assumed subject. Can you say a little bit about what you mean by being embodied, what it means to be an embodied person moving throughout the world? It's one of the things that I've tried to articulate several times and I feel like I never quite managed to do it as precisely and perfectly as I wish I could. But I start from the idea that what it is fundamentally to be a person is to be a lived subject and bodies are not neutral, they're not even dimorphic what our bodies look like and what our bodies do and what drives we have shape how we engage with the social world and how others judge us and treat us. And I think that it's quite tempting to put down embodied difference to the state of irrelevance in order to focus on someone's ideas or to think about principles of justice, fairness, equality, and so forth. But I think that there's room to keep the body in our politics and in other areas of philosophy as well. Of course, I'm primarily a social feminist philosopher, so that's where my energies are directed. So you spoke before about being or labelling yourself as a social justice philosopher. Mm -hmm. Can you say a bit about what you mean by that? The interest began with the same-sex marriage debate. And I had this kind of conceptual interest in understanding selves as subjects prior to engaging 
with this more directly social justice related philosophy during my PhD. But I just couldn't help but notice as a queer person myself that several arguments that were doing the rounds in the early days of activism and the push for same-sex marriage in Australia were really focused on trying to platform the sameness of queer subjects to heterosexual subjects. And I just thought that's not helpful. And the reason that it's not helpful is that you're only asking for a very small concession that doesn't put any kind of onus on straight people to change the way they act towards queer people more broadly. It's only those queer people who, if you accept, you know, the love is love argument, is those queer people who replicate the heteronormative lifestyle are the people who get respect or at least tolerance. And those who don't conform are still the other. They still have to navigate a society that's hostile to them in several many ways because, of course, changing the law and allowing marriage equality didn't suddenly eliminate homophobia or transphobia for that matter. So I've always suspected that philosophy can be put to use to actually achieve some important political, social justice ends. I think that philosophy fundamentally is about meaning for me. Thinking about these strategies, not just as a means to an end, but in a way that encourages us to take the time to really carefully tread a path forward. Philosophy is so important in creating that space for careful reflection and careful social change. So what you're suggesting is that philosophy for you is an incredibly personal thing with an emphasis on the body and the way that our bodies move through the world and the social meanings attached to our bodies, rather than maybe how it was traditionally viewed as being sort of the realm of sort of exploring abstract ideas and walking the paths of logical space somewhat unconnected from our actual realities. Are you inspired by any philosophers who have maybe had sort of similar ideas to you about what philosophy is about and how one should approach it? I mean, I kind of came to philosophy accidentally in that not being very familiar with universities, with academia, when I got to do philosophy for the first time, it was like, ooh, fun little mind puzzles. And I really enjoyed that a lot. But simultaneously, I was also reading a lot of feminist literature, which, as it turned out, happened to be the case. It was by women philosophers. And so through coming to find myself in those texts, I similarly found that there were other people who were privileging embodiment and difference in the way that they understood their social world and its implications, not just in politics and ethics, but also epistemic implications and sometimes metaphysical implications as well. I started my love affair with Elusa Rigori. Her early texts made me think about the world in a way that I hadn't done previously. She questioned the male-centeredness of not only philosophy but also psychoanalysis and she critiqued the tacit masculinism of language. She's a French speaker, of course, so the Romance language has the different feminine and masculine pronouns for all kinds of things. And I thought, wow, look at 
what happens when you approach ideas from embodied experience and critique it, not just at the abstract level, but you use bodies to imagine or conceptualise differently. And I really got that from her early work. And I guess as time has gone by, I've sort of left her influence behind a little bit. I've really been enjoying reading the works of Iris Marion Young. And of course, I love the works of Moira Gatons as well. I draw a lot of inspiration from Gatons' research on social imaginaries and that's probably the conceptual framework that links all of the seemingly disparate topics I've worked on together because I truly believe that there are dominant impressions that are widely shared about how the world is structured and how society should go and which people belong in which roles and what their capacities are or ought to be. And we can challenge those frameworks really in the most resonant and effectively urgent ways. But I guess that's a move away from the traditional way of doing philosophy where it's very much about ideas and reason and logic. And this is so thoroughly contextual. Anything that you can say about social imaginaries and how they function in a structural way is always going to be imperfect because we're always beholden to particular ideas that we take for granted as truths. And you can't question everything and retain meaning. So there are some things that you have to accept are true. And one of those things that I accept is that the experiences we have as embodied subjects are qualitatively distinct from one another. And through theorising from those distinct places, we can come to approximate better an idea or an image or an impression of what societies are actually like as well as what they should be like. You are listening to The Philosopher's Zone on RN and the ABC Listen app. I'm Paul Mikhail katapang Podoski, filling in for David Rutledge while he's on leave. I'm a lecturer in philosophy at Macquarie University with a particular interest in race and gender as well as conceptual engineering. And my guest today is philosopher Louise Richardson-Self from the University of Tasmania, and author of Hate Speech Against Women Online, Concepts and Countermeasures. So now we've got an idea of the research you've been doing and the kind of uh, people who have inspired your research. I want to get into what your experience has been like being an academic philosopher, but in particular what your experience is of being a minority philosopher has been? You know, what's it been like? I think when I was an undergraduate student, I noticed that there were more boys in my classroom than there were girls. And I noticed that most of the girls were not really that forthcoming with their challenges to the particular proposals that students would make in the classroom. And when I started my PhD... I found myself similarly surrounded by men and only two or three other women. It was quite bizarre the further I got into my philosophical career how few women seemed to be around me. 
And I suppose in philosophy, the difference that I have noticed the most is the gender difference. Though, of course, the majority of my colleagues are white, as I am myself. To my knowledge, none of my colleagues live with a disability, whereas I live with chronic pain. So there are aspects of myself and aspects of difference that are quite prominently placed. But as a woman, it seems hard to create spaces in philosophy for other women and then to also carve out new disciplinary norms that help women feel included in the discipline as well. And while I certainly don't have many stories to tell about overt sexism or misogyny in the discipline than, say, a woman philosopher of 10 or 20 years ago would have, I've still witnessed a room full of mostly men and a panel of mostly men talking to each other and a failure of the chair to draw on a woman who has her hand raised to ask a question, for instance, or to see a woman's argument get dismissed as emotional by a male philosopher. And you think, when those things happen, you think, wow, really? You know, that overt sexism is much easier to call out and address. It's harder to sit in a room full of people and notice something that nobody else is noticing. And that probably isn't done without any malicious intent whatsoever. But you still have to say something. Yeah. Like in that respect, being a woman has been unremarkable in some ways and very remarkable in others. So I suppose I've had a similar experience in philosophy as well, being a person of colour. And I know when I always scan the room, um, it's all often just a body of, you know, white people sort of engaging with the philosophy of other white people, which can be a difficult experience to feel included um, and to feel visible in those sorts of spaces. Um, and so I was wondering, what ways do you feel visible or invisible in academic spaces? Are there certain situations that make you feel like you're being seen and heard and respected and other situations where you feel, oh, yes, this space doesn't really feel like it's mine? Yeah, that's a great question because there is that variety of experience You know, when it is your job to do philosophy. I certainly find that there are some, I guess, bodies where, you know, if they hold a conference, you can expect it to have the attendance of mostly white, mostly mm. male, mostly straight, mostly cis philosophers. And there's space to do feminist philosophy there. And it's not necessarily going to be poorly received, but the dynamic kind of feels like you're an interloper. Yeah. It's impenetrable in a way, like what the core is, is centrally focused on these men's interests. Yeah. And then there's the peripheral feminist interest off to the side in the background. Mm. But that's not always the case. I think conferences in particular, it really makes a difference who you invite as your keynote yeah. and how many people you invite to be keynotes. It's always good to see more than one woman yeah. in a lineup. But it's also, over the course of my career, I've worked with more and less women. And certainly it felt good to have a number of women colleagues. And I think that even not having so many women around, I've been quite fortunate to have supportive colleagues who will co-teach a unit that's based 
on feminist philosophy texts yeah. or who will come along to my department seminar and will engage in the work that I'm doing, even though it's not their area of expertise, and engage in a good faith manner, you yeah. know, in a way that is constructive and helpful as opposed to the tendency to try to take down an argument mm. for the sake of being able to demonstrate your chops as a philosopher. Yeah. I feel incredibly lucky to have done a PhD at the University of Melbourne where more social justice-oriented philosophy was taken seriously. And there's part of me that feels also very lucky that there's been this movement in philosophy where social justice-oriented work is taken a lot more seriously and a lot more people are working on questions related to the nature of race and gender do you, are you feeling that shift in sort of the way that, you know, what kinds of philosophies people are taking seriously? I definitely am. And I really think that the prominence of social epistemology, and in particular the literature around epistemic injustice, has been so helpful for this. Because when people are talking about the ways that you can harm people as knowers and the central aspect that enables people to commit those harms comes down to race, gender, ability, that opens the door for a lot of marginal philosophy, you know, say continental feminist philosophy or even scholarship from sociology and law and media. There's a convergence, a crossroads at this kind of space of injustice and the very many ways in which people can perform I guess the best word is microaggressions hmm. and analyse that, take it seriously. Do you think that there's any drawbacks with this kind of movement towards social justice-oriented philosophy? I want to say yes. I think that there's difficulty straddling questions sometimes between the metaphysical epistemic questions and then the commitments to justice and the implications they have for an ethic or for political philosophy. Sometimes they do not overlap well. Hmm. And I think it can be problematic. Like we're seeing a resurgence of people doing the metaphysics of gender, asking the questions about, well, what fundamentally does it mean to be a woman or to be a man? And I understand why people feel it's necessary to ask and answer that question, even though it has been asked and answered in so many different ways mm. for so long. But part of me is committed at coming to the, the issues around gender from the perspective that this is primarily a political ethical issue. Yeah. And metaphysics comes second. Yeah. And that just doesn't make sense to a philosopher because metaphysics is first philosophy. Yeah. So there's drawbacks there in that, like, what's your defence from mm. starting from a position of political inclusion, mm. ethical inclusion, if you are saying something that seems fundamentally to be metaphysically impossible, logically incoherent? Mm. Yeah, that's interesting to note. And... It is interesting that there has been this resurgence of interest in so these questions about what it is to be a woman and what it is to be a man and what it is to be a particular race. That doesn't pay a lot of respect to the history of that literature, mm -hmm. um, where a lot of people, I think, in analytic philosophy in particular, are trying to reinvent the wheel in many ways. And they are forgetting the political nature of these sorts of questions and forgetting that there's real material impacts. 
that we have to consider when we even engage with these questions in the first place. So I just want to move on to another question. How do you navigate your minority voice when producing philosophy? One of the things that I have done recently is change the style of my prose in order to put more of myself into my philosophy. Again, this is a very non-normative way of doing philosophy. Mm. So the standard you would expect is to have, you know, a set of premises that lead to a conclusion and establishing those premises involves some kind of analysis that goes in to feed the body of your argument. But I've been quite inspired in particular by reading the work of Susan Bryson and the way that she's put her own experiences of sexual trauma to work in helping her analyse and understand certain sorts of experiences that women go through, and not just women, other people who experience severe trauma, so Mm. victims of war and displacement. And I thought, you know, reading her work, I just feel so moved at what philosophy can do, and I really want to write things that people not only find intellectually interesting but are moved by. I think philosophy again, is really about meaning-making. And narrative is such an interesting form of speech that engages people affectively as well as intellectually and putting together, putting together an argument that touches upon both how people feel and what people think has possibly a greater ability to move people's considered opinions Mm. on a particular issue than something else. So I'm taking liberties, I guess, with my minority self. I'm looking at, you know, what other people have done, both those who conform and those who don't conform, and I've taken the liberty for myself to stop conforming. Yeah, right. (laughs) So this sort of power that you suggest philosophy has in changing sort of people's considered opinions about the world... Do you think then that when you do philosophy, what you're doing is a distinctly political act? Absolutely, at least for me. I don't understand how the type of philosophy I do could be anything but political because my philosophy always addresses a call to justice. And sometimes it's a call that's being made explicitly and directly, such as the call for same-sex marriage to be legalised. Sometimes there is recognition of a problem that can be understood as a call to change. So when I've been working on online misogyny, there's been a lot of critique by women, both in the academy and outside of the academy, about the internet as a patriarchal space that perpetuates harms against women. And I've tried to articulate that those harms are group harms and not just harms to individuals who happen to get abused by some person in this comment section, some person on that forum. But it's also, I think, true for what I've been working on more recently, which is thinking about the self as explicitly cisgender, which I am. I think that being able to tell my story of how I understand my relationship to a particular minority group, trans subjects, is the perfect place for the overlap of story and philosophy because how we 
think about ourselves in relation to others is central to treating other people well. So absolutely the political is there, the ethical is there as well. So one last question, and it's about how we go forward in philosophy and how we make it better for minority philosophers. Do you have any ideas about how we can create sort of inclusive spaces for minority philosophers and students to flourish and feel welcome in the academy? I think that we both have the answer to that and yet have no answers at all. <laughs> like it's, it's well and good to say what we need to have is more familiarity with women philosophers, put them on the syllabus. What we need people to do is make an active effort to read scholarship by women and then cite it in our own scholarship. Um, we need to encourage our colleagues to submit their research for consideration in prizes. But at the same time, we've We've heard that said so often before, and clearly something's missing. There's a, a kink in the chain somewhere that needs to be worked out, and I'm not sure exactly where that kink is. But something that I've found interesting, and, and maybe this is worthwhile for other people to do as well in teaching, it's not just about assigning women, but taking the time to make sure that your students understand that a particular unit that they're taking might be very different and they might not notice. Mm. So if you teach a unit where you've explicitly put together a syllabus that has cisgender women, transgender women or other trans folk, people of colour, people who live with a disability, people who have come from working class backgrounds, etc., I think that that's an excellent step in the right direction to bringing diverse ideas into the classroom. But I think it's also important to explicitly say to your students, look how many people who look like me you've met in your undergraduate life. You know, what does philosophy look like at the structural level, not just at the level of ideas? Mm. I think that that doesn't magically mean 50% of women <laughs> make up the staff in a university all of a sudden just because you've pointed it out to students. But, you know, they're the people who are going to go on to do their higher degrees by research in the discipline and people who will one day be creating their own syllabi and choosing what gets included and what doesn't. So maybe even starting at that level of awareness about the discipline as such, in addition to highlighting excluded areas of thought in the doing of philosophy is worthwhile? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the spaces that philosophers tend to operate in need to be inclusive and the norms need to change to be less combative. We need to have more representation of minority people. Giving talks, being on the syllabus and sort of recognising sort of its current state. I'm optimistic that things can change, that things are getting better. No doubt you're helping you know, be a part of the solution. So thank you so much today for your insights. Thank you. Louise Richardson Self is a lecturer in philosophy and gender studies in the School of Humanities at the University of Tasmania. This episode of The Philosopher's Zone was made in partnership with the Australasian Association of Philosophy and was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. I'm Paul Mikhail Katapang-Podoski. Thanks for your company.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.